My topic this evening is living in the peace of God. And my text is from Proverbs 14 and verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. That's what we all want, isn't it? A heart at peace. In the midst of nuclear threats and natural disasters and political turmoil, we want and need a heart at peace. As a people, we Americans spend a lot of time and energy and money seeking that inner peace. There is transcendental meditation, medical and recreational marijuana, Reiki, yoga, and many forms of therapy, all of which in different ways promise a heart at peace. A major world religion, Buddhism, is increasingly popular in our secular society. And Buddhism may be described as a way to find peace within oneself. Buddhist practices require no belief about God, no authoritative moral imperatives to fulfill, no community to which we belong and are accountable, no necessary repentance for our sins. But instead, Buddhism offers the goal of nirvana, the negation of desire, the elimination of self, all to achieve a heart at peace. Every December, the message of the angels, peace on earth, is repeated on millions of Christmas cards and TV ads and shop windows and briefly lifts our spirits. But what does the Christian faith, what does the gospel say about living in the peace of God, living with a heart at peace? Before we sign up for Transcendental Meditation, or Reiki, or yoga classes, or smoke pot, or go into therapy, perhaps we should examine the teaching and resources of our own faith. Our first lesson from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, describes the blessing that the Old Testament priests are to give to God's people. A blessing that the Lord, Israel's covenant God, may give them peace. And the Hebrew word translated peace is, of course, shalom, which means not just the absence of war or conflict or alienation, but the presence of well-being, health, prosperity, salvation. So peace is God's gift to his people, and not just any God, but Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 85, which we recited a few moments ago, in this psalm, this promise of the priestly blessing is repeated. Verse eight, let me hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak peace to his people. Now the psalm began with a plea for restoration and forgiveness. Verse seven sums it up. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. 
And the psalm reaches its climax in the last four verses with the Lord's response to the psalmist's plea. In the divine response, his steadfast love results in faithfulness to his promises, and his faithfulness produces righteousness or right action, and his righteousness brings the peace of forgiveness and restoration. Peace with God enables us to enter into his life, a life of holiness. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In him we are forgiven, accounted righteous, reconciled, The barriers to knowing God and receiving his spirit are removed. We are redeemed from sin and from its consequence, death. But the fullness of God's peace, shalom, we will only experience at the end of the age in the new heavens and new earth. It is, as we say, an eschatological hope. But in our gospel reading from John 14 and 16, Jesus promises peace now. It is his personal legacy to us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And it was given initially to a very confused group of disciples, soon to undergo the trauma of his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and painful death. His peace will be mediated by the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. His peace will be permanent, unconditional, uncompensated. Not as the world gives do I give to you. His peace is anchored in the promise of his return. You heard me say I am going away and I will come to you. But this promised peace is not the full shalom of heaven. It is for us now, in the midst of a world with nuclear threats, natural disasters, and political turmoil. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How then do we access this peace that Jesus would give us? What must we do or be to experience it, to live in it? How do we as followers of Jesus live in the peace of God? For answers, we must turn to our second lesson, Philippians chapter four, verses four through nine. The only place in the New Testament where the phrase, the peace of God is to be found. Please find this passage now in your Bibles. Look first at verse seven. It tells us what the peace of God does and what is its nature. First, what it does. It guards our hearts and our minds, that is our whole selves in Christ Jesus. The metaphor is deliberately military. Like a sentry, the peace of God keeps from us all that would take us away from Jesus and it does so by uniting us with him. But every moment of pleasurable sin, 
serious doubt, panic, despair, fear, indifference, hatred, sees that peace broken. And second, we learn the nature of this peace. The peace of God surpasses all understanding. Like the new birth, the birth from above in Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter three, this peace is a mystical event which we cannot explain or analyze. We simply know when we have it. And alas, we know when we've lost it. Verse seven provides the basis for the blessing which I as an Anglican priest have used to close countless worship services saying the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen. My tragedy and the tragedy of many Anglican priests who use this form of blessing is that we never explain the context of verse seven and so deprive our listeners of the means of entering into that peace in fulfillment of the blessing we offer. So tardily and penitently, I do so now. Look at verses four through six. These are the practices that help us receive the blessing of the peace of God described in verse seven. The little word and, and the peace of God, implies that what goes before results in what follows. So what are these practices? First, rejoice always. And this one is so important that Paul repeats it. Again, I will say, rejoice. And this is a hard teaching if you understand Paul to require of us a state of perpetual happiness and good cheer. As a committed curmudgeon, I would find this a counsel of perfection well beyond me. Also, more seriously, it runs counter to the full range of emotions displayed by Jesus, from sorrow to anger to frustration to horror and fear, as in Gethsemane. Jesus did not always rejoice. Must we? Are we to outdo our Lord? A better reading, I think, is to emphasize what comes between rejoice and always. It is the Lord Jesus that you are always to rejoice in. You need not, you cannot always rejoice. But when you do rejoice, let it be ultimately in Jesus. If you rejoice in your promotion at work, following a good evaluation, say, thank you, Jesus for opening this career path for me. If you rejoice in the appreciation expressed for your assistance to a neighbor in your building, say thank you, Jesus, for putting her need on my heart and helping me to respond. If you rejoice in an unexpected invitation to dinner from a very attractive single colleague at work, say thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to get to know him better. Help me to be your person in this new relationship. So let your rejoicing, when you do rejoice, be ultimately in Jesus. 
This establishes his priority in your life. This affirms his sufficiency and power, protection and love, his victory over sin and death. Rejoice in the Lord always. It is, it means that Jesus is our greatest good and highest value. It is in fact, what might be described as our worldview. Next, Paul turns to our conduct. In the ESV, the translation of the Bible we use at the Church of the Cross, verse five features a very strange rendering of the Greek word epiekes. It's translated reasonableness. But the word is usually translated forbearance or gentleness or my favorite, because it seems so positive and active, magnanimity. As when someone refuses to retaliate when attacked or lends without expecting anything in return or blesses and assists his enemies. Does this behavior sound familiar? Paul clearly has in mind Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But these ethical imperatives have been transformed for Paul by the stupendous events which have happened since Jesus taught on that mountain, his death and resurrection, and his gift of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is at hand, writes Paul in verse 5, as if to explain why you and I can afford to be magnanimous and forbearing. The Lord is at hand. Paul means either Jesus' return in glory at the end of the age or his abiding presence with us through the Holy Spirit now, and it doesn't much matter which. The point is he's here, our victorious Lord and Savior. He's with us, always with us. So says Paul, let's act like people who have joined themselves to a winner, who do not fear abandonment or death, who can be generous with time and talent and treasure because our future is secure in Jesus. Our witness in this regard will be known to everyone, as Paul says, and show the reality of the Lord's presence and power in our lives. So live out in your behavior the truth that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Finally, from worldview and conduct, Paul turns to the prayer life which will sustain us. Do not be anxious, he writes, for anxiety is the opposite of peace. As Oswald Chamber puts it so powerfully, anxiety is unconscious blasphemy because anxiety denies God's presence and power and protection in our lives. But instead, says Paul, being, of being anxious, let your requests be made known to God in prayer and supplication. Anything that would make you anxious should be forwarded at once to God in a specific prayer request. Generalities won't do. Lord, I'm late for this appointment. I need a parking space. Lord, this meeting is important and I'm scared of my boss. Please help me stay calm. 
Lord, I sent out 30 resumes and have heard nothing for three weeks. Please help me to trust you with my future. Now here we are talking about specific short-term worries with a rational connection between our fear and the situation that causes it. Some of us deal with more chronic, generalized, and irrational emotional states, phobias, panic attacks, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and other anxiety disorders, where therapy and medication are entirely appropriate and necessary, along with prayer. Paul also stresses another element in our life of prayer, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. At night, before bed, reflect on the day past. What is there to be thankful for? Stop to consider how God is at work in your life. Sometimes his response to your requests may be no or wait, and this is hard to take in the midst of pressing need. But sweeten your soul with thanksgivings, and you will wake up to the fact that God, over time, slowly and in his way, is doing better things for you than you can ask, imagine, or pray for. One of my disappointments with the Church of the Cross, and there are very few of them, is that there are seldom any thanksgivings offered during the prayers of the people. Do you feel that they are unwelcome? Too personal? On the contrary, it will bless us to learn how God has blessed you. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So worldview, conduct, and prayer life, these are the practices through which the peace of God becomes established and maintained in you as you rejoice in Jesus as your highest and greatest good, where, whenever you rejoice, as you live life in his presence, a life which is generous to others, and as you constantly refer requests and thanksgivings to him in all your circumstances and needs, both great and small. You see, living in the peace of God is not only living at peace with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Beyond that, it is entering day to day into the tranquility of God's eternal being. The peace of God ultimately is the peace which God himself has with himself. It's that that surpasses all understanding because it is completely supernatural. And as you know that peace, your life, whatever your circumstances, becomes worthwhile. And if you lack that peace, nothing else in your life is ultimately satisfying. So rejoice, be magnanimous, and pray comprehensively. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.